Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon, and my special guest today is Paul Oles the current CRO at Sprinkler. Paul started his career as a rep at Aerotech, then as an account executive at Ariba for four years before moving to NewScale, which was acquired by Cisco. After NewScale, Paul moved to Zillant for a few years before moving into the management ranks at Lattice Engines and then at Medallia. He became VP of North America at Fuse for a couple of years before moving into the CRO role at Tenfold, which was acquired by LivePerson. Paul then moved to Sprinkler, where we find him today as the Chief Revenue Officer. Welcome, Paul. Hey, how have you been? It's been been a while since I've seen you. Yeah, it has, John. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Where do we find you today? I am in Austin, Texas. This is home for me. That's, there it is. You grew up in Texas? I did. Yeah. Spent uh, childhood between Austin and San Antonio. There you go. So you're the chief revenue officer at Sprinkler. And for the audience, maybe you can give us, um, give us a little overview of Sprinkler, you know, what it does and yeah. why customers need Sprinkler. Yeah. So, you know, as channels have grown, And when I talk about channels, the way customers can engage with companies, whether it's good old fashioned voice or chat or SMS, and then all these channels that are popping up every day, social channels, messaging apps, it's gotten really difficult for companies to be able to maintain a consistent approach with their customers across all these channels. Couple that with the fact that this communication that's coming in is largely unstructured. So companies are having a hard time harnessing it and making meaning of it. And so what Sprinkler does is is we help them consolidate all those channels. So basically allow their customers to engage them in the way that they want. We understand that unstructured data, route it to the right people within those companies, whether that's someone who's creating marketing content that needs to update how they're they're, uh, putting that content out there, people running advertisements, uh, contact center, routing to the right area within the contact center, uh, sales and commerce teams. So really helping companies kind of modernize and create that later layer on top of them so that they can unify their company more effectively and uh, ultimately improve the experience of their customers. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, a number of years ago, when all of this started, um, I had my utility company took a telephone pole that was damaged in a storm and they replaced it, but they took the, <laughs> they took the telephone, the existing telephone pole and left it on the ground in my driveway and took off. And I 
I went on a, on a business trip and I figured by the time I get back, you know, it'll be gone. Five days later, I come back, it's not gone. So I call the utility company. I get somebody in customer support. They said, yep, we'll get, we'll get it out of there. You know, a week later, it's still there. I call customer support again, nothing happens. And here's where the magic happens. And this is years ago. I take a picture of it. I put it up on Twitter and I yeah. say, poor customer support from, you know, my utility company. And I think I put one or two lines as to why they just, they just left it there. The next day I get two calls and there's two cherry picker trucks that show up to pick up that telephone pole because it's now not one-to-one it's one-to-many. And that's where the power of sprinkler really comes in also. Right. That's right. It's a great story. Yeah. Hey, you've had a great career so far in sales leadership and I'm sure it's going to get a lot better. What's ingrained in your thinking or your methodology now that wasn't ingrained in the younger Paul Oles as he came up the ranks? Yeah, I'd, I'd say what's become much clearer to me is it really is about the quality of the people that you bring in to your org and that you retain within your org. I think as an early leader, I mean, this going back to my first, uh, you know, first leadership job in general, frontline manager, is you, you sometimes think, well, listen, I can take someone who maybe doesn't have all the raw materials and the attributes needed to be successful, and I can sprinkle some magic dust on those people and, uh, and turn them into A players. The fact of the matter is there's got to be, there's gotta be some, some attributes in people that uh, things mom and dad taught them, things that they've learned uh, through the way they grew up or their life experience that experiences that you can't teach necessarily, right? And so it's become evidently clear to me that if you don't have people that have those kinds of that type of DNA, no matter what you do, uh, you may not always get them more often than not. You're, you're not going to get them to the levels that you need them to be, to be successful for the company. And that's become super clear to me in comparison to my early days. Yeah. And that's what a lot of, you know, first time leaders make the mistake of sometimes they're under pressure to hire from, from executive leadership. And, and then they're just putting a body in the, in the role and they really don't understand the huge impact that it has not only on that person, because chances are that person may not make it if they're not a good fit, but also they're putting their career in jeopardy. Right. So right. walk us a little bit through how, how do you test for some of the key characteristics that you mentioned? Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you look at some of those characteristics and I won't, I won't go into all the details, but at a high level, uh, at a high level, you know, intelligence is very critical. Once again, it's not something we can teach. We can't put someone through an enablement class and they come out, you know, with an IQ that's jumped significantly higher. Um, the way that, and, and by the way, one of the things we do with our, all of our hiring managers is we actually give them a set of detailed interview questions. Now they can deliver these in their own voice, but it's meant to vet out some of these areas um, around these, these attributes that I'll talk about. But the first one for me that 
tends to be uh, help on the on the intelligence side is the quality of the questions that people actually ask you in the interview process. So so what do I mean by that? You know, people can come in and ask things like, uh, how many people hit quota last year? What's your average deal size? And these are all necessary questions. But when you get to a certain level in the interview process, my assumption is those questions have already been asked a lot of times through the recruiter, maybe early on. And I'm looking for people to actually have a little bit of skepticism. So in other words, people that are saying, listen, I get it. I understand what you do. But, you know, if I'm a CFO and I have a dollar to spend, I'm struggling to understand why I spend my dollar on this versus something else. Can you help walk me through that? Right. Mm-hmm. It's an example of like it's respectful skepticism, but I they need to convince themselves that it's clear to them why this is the right place or the right offering or the right solution. So that quality of questions to me during the interview process is is a is oftentimes uh, a sign of intelligence. Um, drive is another one. So really understanding, um, you know, walk, walk us through some situations where it's been easy for you to throw in the towel, where you were tempted to throw in the towel. This could be personal or professional. Uh, usually more enlightening on the personal side, to be honest. Of 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 when they can can walk through examples of when the chips were down, they persevered through because we all know this job's hard, and there's so many examples where where people can uh, can punch out and say it's too much, and you're looking for for examples of where people broke through, right? Um, coachability is a big one for me too, you know, and and, and this gets <laughs> it's gotten harder. Maybe I'm getting older. I don't know, but it's got. It seems like there's less of this out there now than maybe there was uh, before. And I'm, I'm a big believer in people that have a growth mindset and that, in their mind, realize there's a lot more that they can learn, versus coming in with all the answers, which I see a lot more of that. And and um, I was taught as a way to kind of ferret that out in the interview process. You go through every job that they've had. And you've asked them specifically what they learned at each step along the way. Love that. Because people who are, that have that growth mindset that are reflective on their past can name a person, oftentimes, a situation where they said, I added this to my game, right? I learned, you know, use a basketball analogy. I didn't play defense. I learned to play defense here. I learned to pass here. Right. I, I learned to run the offense here and each step of the way they're they're picking up skills that now contribute to, to who they are as a professional. And people that struggle doing that, um, it, it, it can be a red flag for me because they they aren't conscious of who's helped shape them to who they are at this point in time. Yeah, or it gets worse sometimes when you're going through those different jobs that they had. If it's never their fault for for failure or or why they left, they're always blaming someone else for why they left. You know, it was a bad boss. It was this. It was that. But they never take ownership for anything that they did. You know, when they left the company. Yeah, hundred percent. 
Yeah, that's, that's, um, you know, I, I think one, one of the things, and, and it, it's tied into that is what did you learn there and why did you leave? What did you learn? Why did you leave? That combination can be pretty enlightening. Yeah. And also your first one versus someone, you know, intelligence, when someone's asking a superficial question, like you said, how many people made quota last year versus very insightful questions where they're asking a question like three or four layers deep yeah. and really, really wanting to know, like, you know, when the rubber hits the road, what's really happening here at this company? Those are really good questions and tells you that the person it's a sign of intelligence, but I also think it's a sign that they've done their homework and they're, and they're people that are going to continue to do their homework to truly understand. Yes. Agree. Yeah. And, you know, we've all made mistakes in our career, but when you look back, what are a few things that you thought you knew earlier on, but you realized <laughs> I really didn't know? Yeah. I'd say there's two. There's two big ones that stand out to me because I see it with a lot of young leaders. And um, I'm uniquely qualified to come in and help coach them out of these because I I did it myself. One is I I took the problems of my team and put them on my shoulders. And, you know, whether it's your kids or whether it's a team, I think one of the the, the most valuable things you can pass on to people is teaching them to become resourceful, become creative, become, I don't know if self-sufficient is the right word, but like, how do I unwind this dilemma that I find myself in? And what I was doing as an early manager was I, and maybe there was some ego involved in this, but I wanted to be, you know, call in dad to make everything okay. I've got some challenge. I'm facing something. And, and it was like, Hey, let me take it. Let me, let me help solve this problem for you. And so there was probably a little bit of a hero complex that was going on there, which maybe got us through that short-term challenge. But what I was doing is I was creating a team of dependents, mm -hmm. people who couldn't think or act on their own. And, and it, 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 like I said, it, it may give you a short-term boost, but long-term, you're never going to scale. You're right. never going to scale the business. So that was number one. That's the number old, you know, you, you caught the fish for the person, but you didn't teach them how to fish. That's right. Own. That's right. And, and you have to put them in scenarios where, uh, and you may be coaching them through this the entire time, but you're not solving it for them. Right. right? And, and it gets people to learn really how to think and how to navigate difficult times and, the second thing I did, um, I see a lot of leaders do this, especially leaders in remote areas that tend to be farther from corporate headquarters. So I, growing up in Texas, I was, I, you know, always tend to work for companies on the coast. And I actually probably created this culture of, hey, we're in the middle of the country. We're off on our own. I see this in other international markets for U.S.-based companies. It's us versus the world. And what ended up happening in that, there's a fine line here because a, a bit of that's healthy, right? A bit of that is we're the underdogs and we don't have all the big tech companies and we don't have all the big media companies and we're going to go figure out how to do this. So that's the healthy part. What ended up probably happening, not probably, it did, 
was this us versus the world started. I, I quickly realized that I was a representative of the company and what the company was trying to drive. And I was not uh, an island off to myself driving things in my own way. And I've seen people go too far across that line where initiatives that the companies are trying to drive uh, a, a set of processes or whatever it may be, tend to start getting ignored by those teams because it's we do things our way. Now it becomes incumbent on the leadership team of those companies to get their leaders like I was to clearly understand the why they're recommending these things, to clearly understand and articulate to their first line leaders the reasoning behind what they're doing. So those leaders then have the confidence and the buy-in to go drive those things with their team, which wasn't happening in a few instances for me. And so what I ended up doing was probably subconsciously creating a independent operating unit that was having success, but there was a lot of goodness we were probably missing out on because the mindset was, it's all about us and us versus the rest of the world. Yeah. I've seen that a lot, especially internationally, like you described it being down in Texas or Tola, but I've seen it where people will tell me, oh, John, you don't understand. It's different here in <laughs> France or in Italy or in Sweden. <laughs> so then I would ask them, well, how many other countries have you sold into besides France or Germany or Switzerland? or Sweden, none. So I'd say, well, then how do you know it's different? You know, <laughs> and that would get them to basically realize that their argument had no, or their stance had no, no validity to it. Right. And now it was time to open up and really start to learn about yeah. how things really should be done or could be done or could be done different. So Correct. yeah, I've seen that happen. Yeah. And going back to your first one, um, you see with the ego, you see that a lot in the first line managers because they get promoted. Maybe they got promoted and now they're managing the same team of people that they were peers to. And now they want to show that they're super sales people. They have, a, they have their ego and they're trying to you know, sell everything for every rep. And that, that just doesn't scale and that just doesn't work, especially as you go up the ladder. You just have too many people, too many issues for you to own them all. That's right. Exactly. So, you know, this is your second time as a CRO and each time you had to take over a new leadership position, you definitely inherit issues. Talk a little bit about how a new CRO or for that matter, really any sales leader will face challenges in their new job. And then how do they, how should they prioritize what to change? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, first of all, I think um, coming in and and into a new role, you have to you have to let people know you're not a magician, right? It's not like you're going to come in and snap your fingers and everything's going to be okay. Um, it's about, like you said, prioritization of what to do first. What I've personally found and what I've been coached is. Regardless of what situation you're coming into, there are going to be pockets of success. There's going to be 
areas where things are working well? Hopefully. If the answer is no, there's not, you may have made a bad choice on where you went. But the reality of the situation is there are going to be pockets of success. It is incumbent on you as a leader to dive in to where things are working and deeply understand why they're working. That can be all the way to the level of what's the profile of the people that are driving those successful things. And it's not just sales. Like what is the SCD or the solution engineer doing? You know, what about the SDR, BDR who got those meetings? What approach did they take? So kind of step number one, looking at the profiles of the people that have been successful, then diving in with them and ideally with the customers where these successes have happened and understand why did you take this meeting with us initially? Walk us through what about that first meeting? What is it that we said? What is it in the way that we positioned ourselves or identified the pain you were focused upon? Really capturing these kind of pivotal moments. You took the first meeting. How did we articulate why it was worth your time to have the second meeting? And, and really understanding the buy-in from the customer of I've, I, I've gone from step one, now I want to go to step two. You have to basically uh, reverse engineer every single thing that happens. And what I've seen a lot of leaders do, myself included, I will show up or I've shown up at a place with a playbook kind of written in a uh, magic marker because it worked in my past. What do I mean by that? You can't change it versus a playbook written in pencil where there are some laws of physics and there are some fundamental beliefs you have that you're not gonna waver from. But until you dive into what's worked at that company and that environment and that market for that product set, for that buyer persona, there's gonna be some things that may be in, have been a little different than in, than in your past lives and your past experiences. And you as the leader, A, you, you earn a ton of credibility by diving into what's working. And then B, you now hopefully have a template and a model for success that your job is now to repeat that, train to it, enable to it, and then hold people accountable to following it because in multiple cases, it's yielded success. Yeah. It's like a Venn diagram to me. Like, like you said, there's certain things that are going to overlap when you go from one company to another company, certain fundamentals. But then because, you know, you have a different persona, different use case, different product, different price points, different messaging, all those types of things, it's not so cookie cutter. And you have to look for the little subtleties that are outside your current, you know, circle that, you know, you'd like to believe it's cookie cutter, but it's not. So it's, it's really like a Venn diagram of new things that you have to bring to the table and change in order to optimize, you know, everything that happens in the sales process. And so I agree but, with you. But there are universal things that don't really change right. either, right? You've got to implicate pain. You got to find uh, and develop champions. You need to get to the person who can make the decision on discretion. Those things are universal. Oftentimes, it's the the layer two below those that may happen in a little different order. They may 
be a little different, but the, 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 the big things tend to never change. Right. But what I like about what you said is what you really were saying there, if we had to put it in, you know, a couple words is you were focused on the fundamentals and you, you, you diving into each and every one of those fundamentals and seeing, does this test for real right now? Or does this test like it's a little different than it was before? And I got to optimize around this, you know, so you didn't go in and just assume that everything's the same. You went in and assume that everything could be different, but I'm going to test each and every one of these fundamentals. I really like that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about forecasting. Can you talk a little bit about how a CRO determines the final number that they're going to roll up to the CEO? You know, you and, you and I have done this many times, but I think it's really educational for a lot of people that wonder, like, how does that magic actually happen? Yeah. I learned from some good ones. That is for sure. And, you know, there, there, there's two ways I've found that you do this. And, and the higher up you move in your career, the harder it is to do the second one, which uh, just to get ahead, the second one is what's called the bottoms up every single deal. I'll come back to that one in a second. You tend to have to lean more, at least initially on what I'll call tops down, which is the, the first approach. Now, the way I've done this and, and, and in the environments I've been in, you've got multiple kind of vectors here that you're triangulating to come up with the range and ultimately your commit to the board. The first one is, I'll call this weighted. Um, so when you can actually take all of the deals in your pipeline with the close date for the quarter that you're making the forecast, and based on the different sales stages therein, create uh, a weighted forecast. So in, a, in essence, a single number. Now there's multiple tools out there now that are really getting quite advanced. Um, that that we use. Um, I won't go into the details of what those are, but there's there's different analytical ways of of looking at this. Now, I will tell you that waiting is only as good as the discipline you drive in the Amen. field. Amen. That that says you may not pass this stage to go to the next one until you have these customer verifiable outcomes, and everyone agrees, especially your manager that these outcomes have been achieved and the customer validates it. Otherwise, you're going to get garbage in, garbage out on yes. the way. That is one triangulation point is on the waiting. The, the other one is the, is the roll up of the commitments uh, at different levels of the organization. In a perfect world, AEs should be the highest. Then you have first line as their next roll up of their commit, second line, et cetera, down to my direct report. So it kind of should be a, a, a reverse of the highest to the most conservative. Sometimes my direct reports uh, are way too conservative, but uh, that's a different discussion for a different day. Point is, you've got. Well, let me just ask about that. What happens when you have, like, let's say, you know, I don't know how you organize, but let's say three VPs and they all total up to be, let's say, let's make it easy, 10 million for the quarter. And then your VP for, let's say, North America says, well, no, it's really eight and a half. Yeah. Well, 
there's a couple of things there. The one I always go to is I say, well, then what, how are you enabling your people so that they live in this alternative universe that is so different than yours, right? I understand some level of conservatism, like take your biggest deals out, put them to the side, especially if you're not at a certain level there. But I go through and we, we ask everyone uh, in the sales organizations from AE all the way up to kind of the leaders of theaters to put their judgment against an opportunity. We call it in my number, strong backfill or weak backfill. So if a deal is tagged in my number, that is basically the arithmetic of all of those should roll up to as close as possible to your commit. So when I see second line leaders in your examples that have deals in my number, there is a, a set of criteria that you're, they should have been factoring in that says, you know, I've done X, Y, and Z. Thus, this deal is in my number. But when it's not in my third line leader's number, I'm saying, what, I'm trying to understand what are they saying that you're not sick? Right. And so what that ends up happening is it's, well, they think they have a champion. I think they don't. It's like, it's binary. Like, you know, water's wet. You can't argue that it's not wet, right? It's these things that you have it or you don't. And it forces the conversation. And most of the time, John, what ends up happening is the person maybe beneath them says, you know what, you're right. We're wrong. We're kidding ourselves. We need to take this out of the forecast. Now what's happened? Their comfort level has just dropped. They were subconsciously or consciously feeling quite good about their forecast. When you force them to say, listen, it's a binary thing. We don't have these things that justifies you saying this deal is in your number. You've now got a hole in your forecast. You need to go have this conversation all the way down the line because you're never going to get your team fully enabled if you're allowing people to commit things that don't make sense, that are not qualified. And so that everyone down the line now needs to have this realization that they're living in a dream world in this scenario and the deal or deals that they thought they had that could hit that number is now short. And you've now right. amped up the urgency of the team to go figure out how this problem gets solved back to the earlier comment of taking the, the weight of the world on your shoulders. We've now pushed that accountability all the way down. Now everyone feels that urgency. Right. So what you're doing is you're forcing your entire organization or, or a segment of your organization that's where there's a discrepancy in the forecast. You're forcing them through what I might call a reconciliation process. Right. I want you to go all the way down and reconcile the difference between that eight and a half million and that 10 million. Let's that's go right. figure it out now, especially if there's like 10 or 11 weeks left in the quarter yeah. <laughs> instead of figuring it out when there's one or two weeks left in the quarter, figure <laughs> it out now, figure out what we have to do with 10 weeks to go. That's right. And going back to the first thing we talked about, or one of the earlier things we talked about that problem solving mode and that urgency that you've created down all the way to the front line of the organization, that culture and that mindset will help those people tremendously as they advance in their career. 
back to my comment around, if you don't do that, the culture of dependence uh, will set in. The best lessons I learned was when my leader came to me and said, listen, you've created a problem. What are we going to do to go solve it? I'll coach you on it. But ultimately, Paul, you're on the hook. I think the right people gravitate towards that mm -hmm. and they welcome that and it fires them up to go do that. Unfortunately, I think the wrong people run from that. And um, those are the folks that, uh, you know, if you have too much of that in your organization can really cause some problems because this is when you start significantly missing forecasts. Back to the the main point of the question here. A couple other things, John, we use just um, you look at the 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 what we call visible opportunity or VO or qualified pipeline is another term coverage. Do you have a coverage level? Um, and you want to take that down to the individual team level. So, you know, you may convert that consistently at three, three X the target. I may require a little higher. I may convert more to four or five X. I need a little more to hit my number. So you, you can't, we try to avoid just putting a single number on people. It's historically, what is it required by team, by AE to convert that? And do you have that coverage by team? And then seasonality is a big one too, that I look at. Mm. Um, you know, we're in the midst of a quarter right now where, you know, it's our Q3 and we're not unique in this, but you know, Europe's off for a good chunk of Q3. Right. So you got to factor that into numbers too. You got holidays coming up in Q4, et cetera. So seasonality is a big part of this. That's the top down. I won't spend a bunch of time on bottoms up because we talked a lot about it, but it's um, it's really having everyone understand are the attributes in place and uh, the, the, the deal in a stage where at this stage of the quarter, we can confidently say this thing's in our number. To your point, if it's a million dollar plus transaction and it's a new customer, that has a lot to do with it. New versus yes. existing. Mm -hmm. We got to do an MSA and they're based in Germany, right? And it's a high, you know, very sensitive data security environment. And we got a month and a half to go and we haven't even exchanged red lines. That's a problem. So it's that. And I, as a CRO, I'm not going to be able to go into 1500 of those per quarter. But if I've enabled my team all the way down to the first line managers to have this mindset, my job becomes a lot easier because that bottoms up forecast uh, becomes a lot more accurate. Now, do you also look in the beginning of the quarter, like almost consistently quarter in, quarter out, we're getting a certain percentage from new customers and a certain percentage from existing customers. So you can look at it from, the number of deals from new, number of deals from existing, number of dollars from new, number of dollars from existing. Okay, so I'm going to check that. That's what it's been the last three quarters. Now I look at my forecast and I count up the number of deals and dollars coming from new and existing. And I go, up, oh, I'm off. Something's something's not right here. Yeah, you know, that that can be a pretty good test too. And I think what you're referring to is how, also how when it is new deals depending upon the stage that it's in, especially as the quarter starts to roll and you're only six, seven weeks out and it's a customer from Germany, it's a new customer, you never did an MSA with them, that, that this deal may not happen in the quarter. So it's well qualified, but we may not get out of there because of the paper process. 
That's right. That's right. One one other thing is um, the source of the VO. When I say like the attribution too is pretty predictive. We have some sources that convert at a much higher rate than other sources. So back to your comment on new versus existing customers. Uh, I also look a lot at like what percentage of this VO maybe came in through marketing. What percentage of this VO was actually sourced by the AEs, which has the highest conversion rate for us. And there's other different channels, partners, whatever it may be. If one of those is significantly off and it has a lower conversion rate historically, but the preponderance of the pipeline is in that category, you may be a little worried about that as well. Yeah. Let me ask you another question on forecasting. We talked about the 10 million versus the eight and a half million and a certain managers that are underneath, maybe not just that VP, but the people underneath the VP. And they go through the reconciliation process a couple quarters in a row. And you always notice that no matter what happens, you know, some of these managers sandbag consistently. And some of these managers actually have rose colored glasses. So they forecast higher than they ever come in, in actuality. Do you factor that into your personal Paul Oles forecast? I do. Yeah. We, we actually track, uh, Yes. And they know who they are, by the way. Yes. There's no secrets. Um, But they can't help themselves for some reason. They just can't help themselves. (laughs) They can't. (laughs) No, they can't. No matter what you say, no matter what position you put them in. Um, But, you know, we also let the data do the talking because we will, I will track three, call it like three weeks before the quarter, what their commit is, track it first week of the quarter track it third week of the quarter, kind of after QBRs. So, and then versus what they did. And this goes back like multiple years. So someone falls, let's say in that sandbag camp where their consistently initial commits are consistently lower than what they actually do. I don't even have to tell them anything. It's just, (laughs) you are who you are, right? Yes. And And, the data supports it, right? And the data supports it. Yeah. I, I don't know what to tell you. And, but then, but then there's the other ones who, you know, and this is a harder conversation. It's, we got to understand why you're forecasting considerably higher than what ends up happening, right? And this is where uh, I think a lot of the diagnosis needs to happen. And, and you know, there's a whole conversation you can have on that one. But that's, uh, that's where a lot of time needs to be spent as well. But it's also when those types of people that have the rose colored glasses forecast high, always coming in lower. It's when they drop out the deals. If you if you're really qualifying and maybe you drop the deal out with 10 weeks to go, eight weeks to go. okay, I get it. But when you're dropping it out consistently with two weeks to go or two days to go, that really hurts the company, really hurts the team. It does. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're looking at these forecasts or people are giving you the forecasts, even if it's bottoms up, what stage do you think is like the most important stage when you hear them talking about it's in this stage and you, they really, you really qualify it and you know that it's true. Which stage do you feel like, ah, this is, this, this really is a deal. Um, yeah. So to me, 
if you've got implicated pain and it's real business pain, pain above the noise of all the different things they can do, <clears throat> you followed that chain of pain to the person who owns solving it. 99% of the time, that is your champion. That person has aligned the end solution with their decision criteria in their mind with what you do. And they've secured the meeting and you've had the meeting with the person that has uh, discretionary use of budget, i.e. economic buyer. And that person said, even if that person says, there's a few more things I want you to do. And if those things are in our control, that could be a some kind of technical validation event that could be a reference there's a set of things that the economic buyer may ask us to do that could be go interview the people and really fine tune this business case and some kind of business value assessment. But if we've had that meeting and that person says, you do those things and I will spend this amount of money in this time frame with you and I will outline the paper process or I've outlined the paper process for you associated with doing those things because I buy these things all the time or I spend money and I'm at that point in time, if you've had that eyeball to eyeball conversation, that deal is committable. Yeah. Don't you wish all your deals were like that? <laughs> I just described Nirvana, didn't I? <laughs> you did. Then you could just sit back. Yeah. Uh, it would be great if that's how the world actually were. But what did what did Lombardi say? You uh you you shoot you shoot for perfection, you might just get excellence. Yeah, you chase perfection, I think. Yeah, chase perfection, you might get excellent. All right. Let's go back to recruiting just for just for a little bit. You know, over time, have you changed or modified your approach to recruiting? And then, you know, everybody's looking for the A player. So how do you make sure your recruiting process is is differentiated, let's say, from the competition? Yeah, so I'll answer the second question first on the difference. Okay, sure. What... What we ask our leaders to do is we call it sales manager or sales leader PG. So we're asking pipeline generation, for those that don't know what that means. We ask sellers and, and other people in the ecosystem to dedicate time to go build their pipeline on future deals. Block out the world, spend your time doing this set of work in a defined period Every single week, we ask leaders to do the same thing. The generation, though, is candidates, not on deals or customers. It is about blocking out the world, understanding all the top players in your geo that you're responsible for. If I'm in Austin, Texas, I need to pride myself on knowing who all the great people are in this area, and I am going to reach out to them myself. I'm not going to use one of my recruiters, which we have, and our recruiters are great and they do their job. I'm not going to use a headhunter or an external recruiter for this necessarily, which we have and we use them and they do a good job. It, I have joined two companies in my career because I got reached out to by the hiring manager himself or herself. They came to me directly mm. and said, listen, this isn't a spray and pray kind of one size fits all note. Like I'm here. I want to meet you for coffee. It was that 
was, I think, one step of differentiation that got my attention because they weren't, if I was such a great candidate, like all the recruiters tell you, and that my VP of sales asked me to reach out to you uh, and, well, why isn't your VP of sales reaching out to me themselves if I'm so great? <laughs> like, And so that's, I think we ask our people to do that. That's number one. So sales manager PG, in the process, the recruiting process, this may not be as differentiated as it used to be, but I specifically um, am a big believer in this. I've been through it myself, and it's something we drive here, which we call it the simulation. Now, the wrong candidates may not like this. The right candidates love it. Now, what is it? It basically, we ask them to spend some time at a high level understanding our company and the value we deliver through publicly available materials, pick a customer they're familiar with or an account where that they think would be an ideal candidate for us, find an individual within that company they think they would want to reach out to, to tell this story, send a kind of an imaginary email or letter to that person, and then assume you got the meeting with them. How would you run that first meeting? We're not asking you to become an expert in our case of sprinkler and nail that story. We want to see how you run the meeting and how. And what we're doing in that process is a couple of things. One is for the candidate, they're tr they're driving the car before they have to buy it. Can I put myself in a position where I can tell this story on a daily basis, where I can go get meetings, where I can, you know, do I have passion for this? And going through that exercise, I think people have come back and said, "Man, that was really good." Like. I can see myself doing this. We've had other people go, man, I'm punching out. This, this is too much, right? I, I want to go sell a, a different product to a different buyer. But they go through that process. What we're doing is we are basically having them audition for the major elements of this job. Can I do research on customers? Can I effectively go get meetings to the right persona? Can I go run meetings? Um, you know, all of those kind of things that end up being a big, big chunk of what they do on a day-to-day -day basis here. We have people go do that. Now, did we feel a ton of pressure? And were there a lot of recruiters on in my organization that were frustrated by that, especially during the heyday of post-COVID hiring, where it was about mm. fast speed, you're going to lose people? Yes. And I understand why they were. We didn't deviate from that. And we may have lost out on some candidates, but we were not going to compromise on something that was extremely important to us that's proven to be very valuable here in spite of the pressure that uh, everyone was feeling because of the battle for talent that was happening kind of in the 2020-21 timeframe. I think that's really smart. I mean, think about all the things that you were talking about earlier as far as characteristics of a person, you want to know if they're intelligent, they're driven, coachable, asking not superficial questions, but really insightful questions. All of that stuff is a tell once yeah. they start to do the work that you ask them to do. And the people that, that do that sometimes, at least when I've seen it, every once in a while, you get somebody that does such a, an amazing job, like off the charts, amazing. <laughs> and and you're thinking, wow, that person really is very, very smart and did a ton of work. They're prepared. 
So that means they're driven. I really can't, I want to hire the person like this moment. So I think it's really, really smart. And you can never, to your point, you can never take shortcuts when it comes to recruiting or you're going to pay for it later. You may not pay for it right now, but you'll pay for it later. Oh yeah. And And I have, again, it's your career that's at stake, not just yours, but everybody that's doing the recruiting. Yeah. And ultimately, John, what we're judged on is the legacy we've left behind of top. Well, I mean, you know, you, you've experienced this yourself, the legacy you leave behind of people that you've brought into your organization, enabled, coached up, and, and they've gone on to do great things. So it becomes, and it should be a source of pride for leaders to say, have I developed and contributed to a, you know, a legacy of a, a really strong coaching tree, if you will. And, um, and it, it ultimately becomes who we are as leaders. Yeah, I agree. Let's switch gears a little, you know, the economy's been a little tight. CFOs seem to be scrutinizing, especially all the major purchases. I did see on LinkedIn how you did a like 44,000 seat deal at Deutsche Telekom. So congratulations on that. And certainly had to prepare, the reps had to prepare themselves for the meeting with the CFO and scrutinizing the a purchase of that size. So Talk a little bit about how you're preparing your sales team for, let's call it the CFO factor. Yeah. The preparation for that comes all the way back to where you're researching a company before your first reach out to them. So I'd like to coach people to think you're in that meeting with the CFO. You're at that moment of truth. And let's be honest, the the EB in most companies right now is the CFO, right? If if you're a transaction of a certain size, that is the person that's got discretionary spending authority. So think ahead. You're in that meeting. Now, let's start your preparation for even trying to get a discovery call in place. So almost kind of thinking ahead in the movie of the meeting's about to start to We are now going to start our research on this company to to, 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 to ultimately get that meeting. So it goes back to the things, some of the things we've already talked about, which is, and I don't want to belittle this because it could come across as like, I'm, uh, I'm kind of saying it's not a big deal, but if you've done the right things and you truly are connected to a corporate objective, if you think of the concept of a value pyramid, those handful of things that are at the top of that value pyramid, oftentimes the things that the C-level CEO has promised Wall Street, has promised investors. Mm -hmm. We aspire to go from X to Y. You know, we are making acquisitions. We got to monetize those acquisitions. acquisitions. These, These big things, if you have started there and your solution is you can make a direct correlation between what you are working with your champion on to the inability of a company to deliver upon those things at the top of the value pyramid. The CFO meeting should be a relative uh, 
you know, a, 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 like a relatively easy thing to do. And I careful with the word easy because I think what you'll find today, maybe versus a couple of years ago, companies may not be starting as big. They may not be biting off as much, <clears throat> but they will spend money and approve things that are directly connected with those corporate objectives, right? And so I, I bring back to, if you're walking into that meeting, going back to my example of fast forwarding to the going ahead in the movie, if you're walking into that meeting and this thing is perceived as a nice to have or a vitamin versus an aspirin, you're in trouble. It's a reality of the situation. So your job now, almost like an investigative reporter, is you are spending every waking moment figuring out how you can move the needle on those top corporate objectives, finding the people that own the initiatives associated with driving those corporate objectives and trying to understand and navigate the organization to figure out they cannot deliver upon those things unless they have my solution mm -hmm. and they will reach gaps. Uh, they, they, they have gaps in their inability, in their ability to deliver on those things that I can uniquely provide. The CFO meeting should not become as, uh, as much of a concern. Now there's a lot in between here with, business value assessments and quantification of value that your champion owns the numbers on those things and stand up in front of a room of people and say, these are our numbers, we believe in them. There's a lot that goes on here, but to kind of shortcut it, if you're connected to those things, companies will spend money in this environment. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But again, to your point, you have to prove the value of it and you have to quantify that value. Yes. Yeah. And you got to make sure you have a conversation with everyone that has a vote. In oh, this, for sure. In this, that's where I see a lot of uh, shortcuts taken is the CFO will say, well, have you talked to Bob over here and Sue over here? And no, we haven't done that yet. Your deal may happen, but guess what? You've just delayed it multiple months, if not quarters, because those shortcuts were taken. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about key data, KPIs. We had uh, Mark Robert's who is the ex-CRO at HubSpot on the podcast. And he said, when he's making decisions at HubSpot, in God we trust and everyone else bring data. Yeah. So talk to us about certain KPIs that you use or certain data that you like to look at, you know, in the quarter, before the quarter, after the quarter, that help you make decisions. What, what are some of the K, you know, top KPIs that you're looking at? Yeah. So there's a, a, a couple of things going back to the earlier comments of like modeling success and understanding where things have been successful. There's typically a set of activities or milestones that people have achieved along the way of, of that, ex, that success. Think of these as leading indicators that basically say if we can go model those types of things, the volume of those things and the conversion rate between those things, it will lead to a successful outcome. Instead of just kind of focusing only on the outcomes of the scoreboard, it's the steps that need to happen. So for me, I think I see a lot of people probably obsess a bit too much on the volume of those leading indicators. Mm -hmm. Now there, it is an important factor and you have to do enough of these things. For me, what becomes more telling though, 
And you can roll this up to the company level and you can take it down to an individual AE level is a conversion rate between those things. Give you some examples. I may not have any issues with getting these first meetings or a new, what we call a new business meeting. What I may really have a problem with is turning those into second meetings or technical deep dive discussions. Whereas another AE may have plenty of meetings that turn into second meetings and they really fall off the table when it comes to getting the economic buyer meeting. Now, understanding those conversion rates, just like a doctor, you know, would read an MRI or an X-ray. If you come in and you say, Paul, I, my stomach hurts and I start asking you, did you sprain your ankle? You're going to be going, what are you talking about? Right. But if I can read this diagnosis, it says, OK, I have a hypothesis. On a set of things like if you're having trouble turning those new business meetings into TDDs or technical deep dives, I as a doctor can say, well, there's usually a few reasons behind this. Let's dig in a little bit to your preparation. Walk me through how you prepare for these very, very critical and important early meetings. Walk me through, because one of the things we talk about is your champion target needs to be in those. Maybe you're struggling identifying your champion targets. Maybe you're mistaking coaches for champions. Maybe the execution of these meetings is the problem. Let's walk through how you're running these meetings. Are you starting with them? Are you starting with their kind of version of a value pyramid? You're jumping right in. Are you, are, are you not showing any product? Or are you showing too much product? There's a whole set of kind of, as a doctor, I can go for your ailment. And it may be different than the person next to you's ailment who might be I'm, I'm having lots of success early. I can't get to the EB. Well, let's now go through a prescription or, or a hypothesis or a diagnosis of why that may be for you. The reason I obsess on these things is when you start seeing the patterns holistically, it can drive the enablement yes. for the organization. I was and, waiting for you to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. and, and, and so once you have that enablement, once you, you should have that ready to go enablement for any teams where you see the conversion rates are off and when you're seeing it holistically, there's probably a bigger thing for the company that we could focus on at a, at a mid-year or an SKO that, that really touches on some, some more kind of holistic enablement areas. But that's, that's number one, John. The, the, the second one I look at is VO or qualified pipeline created in the quarter. So, so what is a VO to you? I mean, different people have different definitions. Can you describe what a visible opportunity definition is for you? Yes. So um, for, for, for me, it basically means you're at a stage in our sales process where you've implicated pain and you have a champion target identified mm -hmm. and you have had what we call a new business meeting, which there's qualification around what that means. Now, that is at a certain stage of our sales process that elevates it to a level of visibility that it's now real. There is a high likelihood that company is going to spend money with somebody in a defined time frame, and thus it. You look at the, uh, you look at the aggregation of all those opportunities. That is your total visible pipeline. 
Now, what you want to do is you want to take that at the company level. So based on the level of quota roll-up we have or capacity, there should be a pipeline creation within quarter that is a multiple of that capacity. You look at that at the company level, you look at that at the theater level, you take that all the way down to the AE level. And so how are we tracking or how are teams or individuals tracking on their VO creation in the quarter? Now, this mindset is what you're, if you're, if you're focused on tomorrow, you rarely have to worry about today. Mm -hmm. And so I, it's this, 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 well, we still got to hit the quarter in front of us. If the obsession is on the future and driving enough pipeline into the future, less bad decisions, less scrambling, uh, you know, less discounting and all these kind of things we talk about uh, that tends to, to, to happen when you're when you don't have enough pipeline. So that's the other yeah. thing I am intently focused on. When you don't have enough pipeline then the people have a tendency to hang on to those deals. And in the, in the first forecast session of the, of the quarter, they'll try to convince you as to why they are deals. When in reality, they know they're not deals and you need to qualify those deals, you know, off the plate. You need to That's get right. them out. Yeah. It's also the same, like you said, if you, if it's just leads before it's even visible opportunity, you hear a lot of times people say, well, we have four X. And I used to think, what does that really mean? Because going to your volume, you know, statement, 4X, what if everything's in the first stage of the, of the sales process and it's all 4X? You're still never going to make the quarter. So yep. you have to go back to where, you know, where are those deals in the sales process? Where are those visible opportunities in the sales process? And based upon my conversion rates, and historical analysis, you know, do I think that these things can actually turn into a deal by the end of the quarter? Yep. That's right. What else do you look at? Do you look at like sales productivity by regional manager and try to figure out what, why certain regions are more productive than others? Yeah. Productivity per ramped rep is the ultimate metric. Um, this normalizes everything whether you're a remote location or you are, uh, you know, um, right in the middle of downtown San Francisco, it's all about what is the productivity per ramped AE. And so we absolutely focus on this. It is the great equalizer. It's the great normalizer across everyone. And it helps drive future growth opportunities. So it's a big focus, especially in, in this environment currently, where we're not, and I don't think many companies, where you don't have that per rep, ramped rep productivity to a certain level. Let's not grow that. Let's go make our investments where that number is increasing and it's at a certain level that uh, merits future investment. And so this is a great signal for what's working to your point, diving in and understanding the attributes of what's working. And the second one is, is really around where you're going to make your future investments where that number's trending in the right direction. Yeah. I really liked what you said about if you focused on the future, you don't have to worry about today. That's right. It's so important. So important. 
What did we forget, Paul? We covered everything. We covered KPIs, forecasts, recruiting. What did we forget? There's a lot we could talk about. (laughs) I think we've hit the big rocks. Yeah, we did. So, hey, Paul, thanks so much for doing this and congrats on all your success. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this. You got it, John. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Paul. And thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 